0: This is PolyOptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now,
1: from New York, here's Josh King.
2: Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. PolyOptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This is Kevin Sullivan, former White House Communications Director for President George W. Bush, Alongside my friend Josh King, former director of production in the Clinton White House.
3: Sully, it's like you and I are in Air Force One, the VC-25A. We're at Andrews Air Force Base about to go on a presidential mission, and I am your co-pilot on this flight. Take it away. Let's go up.
2: Thanks for having me back, Josh. This is going to be a special show. We're going to devote the entire hour today to the opening on May 1st of our nation's 13th presidential library, the George W. Bush Presidential Center on the campus of Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Today, we're going to learn about how President Bush decided to rely heavily on unfiltered news footage to tell the story of his two terms, and we're going to hear about the exhibits that rely on the latest in gaming technology, if you can believe that, to redefine museum interactivity. We've got a potent lineup of guests, former Bush Press Secretary Ari Fleischer, longtime Bush advisor Karen Hughes, and up first, the person responsible for the development and launch of the Bush Center. Ambassador Mark Langdale. So Josh, thanks again for handing me the helm today.
3: You know, Kevin, it as you said, it is the thirteenth presidential library stemming from George Washington's Mount Vernon to the Clinton Presidential Center in Little Rock that I had a hand in helping to uh to set up. And these are really gifts to the American people. They are actually gifts to the American people. And whether you're in a small town like Little Rock or a teeming city like Dallas, uh they add so much to uh our national appreciation of history. The ups, the downs, and uh, this is just the latest installment. So it's great to be with you today. Thank you. And
2: later in the show, we'll be joined, as I said, by two household names in the world of political communications. Of course, Ari Fleischer and Karen Hughes. But first, the man who has has worked behind the scenes uh, on this on this uh, endeavor, uh, the person who got the call from President Bush back in 2008 to raise the money, work with the National Archives, develop the exhibits, and turn the vision that the President and Laura Bush had turn that vision into bricks and mortar. The former president of Posadas USA and former ambassador to Costa Rica, now the president of the George W. Bush Foundation. Mark Langdale, welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you,
4: glad to be with you.
2: Take us back to those earliest conversations that you had with Secretary Don Evans and the President and Mrs. Bush about the vision for the library and, and, and the work ahead to get where you are on the verge of this uh, this opening this weekend.
4: Well, they um, had uh, tentatively selected Southern Methodist University as the site of the Presidential Library. It is a university that was the alma mater for Laura Bush, Although um, it, there was a contest in Texas among all the major universities to land the this uh, 13th presidential library, but the uh, Bushes had decided to focus on SMU, so they asked me to come and, and finalize an agreement uh, to um, acquire the 24-acre site, which we have now on the campus of SMU. It's a great location. It's, it's five miles from downtown Dallas. It's a half hour from a major international airport. Um, right in the heart of a, of a growing and vibrant city, so we're really happy to have this urban location to develop the center. We also uh, selected Robert Stern, the dean of architecture at Yale University, to um, design the building. Um, it, uh, it it it's informed by. The previous modern presidential libraries, the the first modern presidential library was the one that LBJ built on the campus of the University of Texas. He hired a a well-known architect out of New York and built a um, a very impressive modern building there. And since then, the the Clinton Library, the Reagan Library, um, Bush 41's library at College Station, um, all of these um, are important libraries to look at when you're deciding how to design and build a a current library, so we spent time studying those and and came up with a design that that I think is a uh, um, uh, a, a, a building that blends into the traditional collegiate Georgian architecture of of the SMU campus, but also represents a. Uh, a modern interpretation of that traditional architecture which is appropriate for the first president of the 21st century.
2: You mentioned Mrs. Bush as a, a SMU alum. She's also, of course, a librarian which which is kinda interesting. She played a, a prominent role in the design and the formation of the ideas for the library. Talk a little bit about, about the role of Laura Bush in, in, uh, in the library.
4: Well, she chaired the design committee uh, that um, oversaw the um, relationship with uh, Bob Stern is the architect, and also Michael Van Valkenburg, who was brought in um, very early on as the landscape architect for the site. Uh, the buildings that
3: uh, that are here
4: um, are um, two buildings. One is the Presidential Library Museum, and the other one is the permanent home of the George W. Bush Institute. And uh, they're designed together uh, to, to feel like one complex, which um, helps in how the two buildings relate to each other, but also maximizes a green space so that we can have a native plant park of about 15 acres. Laura Bush has always been very interested in native plants uh, at their Prairie Chapel Ranch in Crawford. She's um, um, always been interested in restoring uh, native prairie landscapes, and so this 15-acre park reflects that passion of hers, the passion of both President Bush and Laura Bush for for, uh, buildings that are sustainable in their design and and construction this this uh, building the bush library has just been designated lead platinum status which we're really proud of it's the it's the first large museum to attain that status at completion of construction Uh, wasn't an easy feat but uh, one that the bushes really wanted us to try to pursue and we're really proud of the design and
2: construction team for achieving that. Now Josh called it a gift to the American people, and it and it really is. Three hundred and twenty-five thousand Americans, many in, in small amounts, right, contributed around five hundred thousand dollars in a tough economy. How did that happen? And what does that say? Five hundred million dollars in a in a tough economy. What does that say about about President Bush and 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 and. The, the, the effort that was that was put together to to build this library.
4: Well, I think it's a real testament to the um, um, fact that there are a lot of Americans out there that appreciate what President Bush did for them. We we uh, we had a goal at the uh, beginning to raise five hundred million dollars. We didn't know if we'd be able to achieve that. Um, uh, the economy was was in a recession when we started but uh, has since recovered somewhat but um, you're right over 325,000 people from all 50 states have uh, contributed um, um, to to get us kind of past our milestone goal it's a great um, relief to have that raise. It, it pays for the building uh, the, and the library and museum, as you mentioned, we gift to the American people next week when when we have the dedication on April the 25th. Uh, and uh, we'll be able to fund the endowment to the federal government to help um, offset the maintenance, future maintenance cost of the building. We also um, have an agreement with SMU to fund a $45 million joint programming endowment, which will allow us to do a lot of uh, uh, projects in partnership with the SMU faculty and and interact better with the the campus and the students there. So we're really happy about that. And the and the rest of the money will come in over time in long term pledges, which will give a good uh, a firm financial foundation for the work of the Bush Institute, which has been up and running for about three and a half years now. But with the, these uh, pledges that are coming in, we'll have a a good runway to really grow grow the importance and the, and the impact of what the Bush Institute is working on.
2: So now we're, we're on the verge of the library opening to the public. Describe the visitor experience for our listeners. When somebody walks into the museum part, what will their experience be?
4: There's two reasons people come to presidential libraries and museums. One is as a researcher to, to look at records that are in the archives um, so that they can study the decisions that prior presidents have made. Um, but most people come to visit the permanent Museum exhibit. Uh, it's an eg- exhibit that you see at other presidential libraries that tells the story of the life and times of a, of a president and also um, what they tried to accomplish when they were in office. Uh, the Bush Museum does that. Uh, you enter through a, a beautiful plaza, which is called Freedom Plaza from SMU Boulevard, which is uh, the main entrance to the campus of SMU. Um, you get your ticket, and then you enter a a large space. It's the signature architectural element of the building. It's called Freedom Hall. Um, it um, is a lantern, a, a kind of a square lantern uh, lit uh, space that has a um, uh, a large LED screen surrounding it that will have a um, a a presentation. That I think people will find really interesting, and from there you enter the permanent exhibit where you where you learn about the key decisions that President Bush made when he was when he was president.
3: Mark, what involvement did you have both with First Lady Laura Bush and President Bush about the actual content, the display, the the narrative writing, obviously that had to go into this and. Uh, your service uh, as president of uh, Posadas USA and then your service as ambassador to Costa Rica, you get this call from the Bush family to say, we need you to build a library. How did you suddenly become a uh, an expert in uh, construction and museum design? And how, how did you sort of create, have to send yourself to school to create this visitor experience that you're talking about?
4: Well, my background was is in hotel development. Um, um, so I, I built large-scale uh, uh, projects uh, that cater to to a large number of annual visitors every year. Um, I also had the uh, distinction of, of knowing the Bushes as friends. I met them in 1988 when they bought the house next door to me when they moved to Dallas, Texas. So George and Laura Bush were really uh, uh, just two uh neighbors uh, with uh, twin daughters in the first grade who I got to know and and really come to admire and ever since then they've been giving me interesting odd jobs to do um from when he was running for governor to running for president to serving as ambassador and I guess my last big odd job is is overseeing the development of this presidential center it's been a great honor but I but I think my background in hotel development really um, informed uh, uh, the, uh, the project in, so a, in a positive way.
3: So did you take field trips to Little Rock or Springfield, Illinois or Independence, Missouri and other places to kind of compare and contrast what, what other presidents have tried to do? You know, I
4: did. In fact, I'm embarrassed to say that when I accepted the job, I had never been to a presidential library. So one of the first things that my wife and I did when we came back from Costa Rica to start this job was we went and toured what I call the the modern presidential libraries, uh, starting with the LBJ Library in Austin. But we also uh, went to the Clinton Library twice and to Bush 41's library in College Station and to the Reagan Library out in, in Simi Valley. Those were the four that we really studied uh to to come up with uh, suggestions on on you know what what worked and what could be improved we also formed an association of uh, all the other presidential foundations and we started meeting on an annual basis to share best practices and and common challenges and and those that that the camaraderie and the advice that I got from the other uh 12 presidential library foundations was really helpful as we developed this uh this uh, plan for what we're building what we built here at smu
3: you mentioned simi valley uh which has the one of uh, president reagan's air force ones uh president clinton's library has a uh, a presidential limousine i think and first president bush's library i think has a part of air force one and a, a limousine what are the sort of key artifacts that people will find that for at least the kids will say oh wow
4: well, the 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 um, uh, we're on a university campus in an urban setting, so our our building is uh, and our site are are not large enough to have an Air Force One sitting uh, next door to it. But um, we have one thing that I think the kids will find really interesting. When President Bush was in office, the um, the Situation Room, which is an underground uh, conference kind of secured conference room that um, is famous for um, you know where presidential kind of. Command is is done. There was a, that uh, famous photo of President Obama when Osama bin Laden was uh, uh, being hunted down. That's a photo from the Situation Room when President Bush uh, was in office. That uh, room was remodeled. It had not been remodeled since I think Truman. And so the paneling and the furniture and things that were in the old Situation Room were taken out when it was updated, and we obtained all those um, artifacts from that remodeling. And we have recreated the White House Situation Room exactly as it was when President Bush launched the invasion of Afghanistan, down to the same chairs and the same old television sets and everything, and uh, high school kids will be able to go in there and uh, reenact um, or study some of those uh, key decisions in, in a recreation of the exact room. So I think that'll be really cool for the school kids.
2: Well, you've got 43,000 artifacts, including some ones that you would, you would expect to see, like the bullhorn that uh, our, our fine advance uh, person, Nina Bishop, uh, got from a Con Ed worker uh, and, and handed to uh, Andy Carter, Carl Rove, I believe, and, uh, to give the president uh, a chance to for the, those there at, at Ground Zero to hear from their president. You've got the baseball from the first pitch at Yankee Stadium, Game Three, the the pitching rubber that he threw from, uh, the jacket he wore. The uh, you know all some 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 great mementos from that night. Of course, the the nine millimeter Glock pistol taken from Saddam Hussein when he was pulled out of that spider hole. But there's also some oddball artifacts that are in there, like a, a, a Gibson electric guitar given to the president by BB King. Uh, what are what are what are your favorite of those smaller, maybe a little offbeat things that that turn up in the in the museum?
4: Well, uh, the ones that touch me the most are some of the things that they were given on their trips to Africa. He, um, you know, he, he established the PEPFAR. Um, Initiative in Africa that really transformed the trajectory of of the African continent. When he took office in 2000, uh, things were very pessimistic about the continent of Africa. The um, um, there were 30, 26 million cases of AIDS, and most of those were in the age bracket of 18 to, to 40, which is really the productive heart of any uh, society. And and in the, on the continent of Africa, there really was. No hope about what to do about that. And uh, with uh, with the PEPFAR initiative, the the whole trajectory of of the future of the African continent has been turned around. I was struck last December when economist when the Economist magazine came out and had a, a cover story article about the bright future of the African continent. And it was right when we were installing the uh, PEPFAR um, um, exhibit component, and uh, you could really kind of you know, in a very clear way, see that President Bush intervened, made a decision, and intervened in a positive way, and had a dramatic impact in Africa. And so, when he would go there, uh, people are so grateful for what he did for them, and and the uh, and the little kind of tokens of that love and appreciation um, are really touching, and and uh, a lot of them are in the in the museum.
3: Ambassador, some of the headline moments of the Bush administration are things that will be talked about, uh, reconsidered in the coming weeks uh, and after the museum opens. But as you're talking about PEPFAR, r- relate that also to the government service that so many thousands of people like yourself were able to have uh from two thousand one until two thousand nine and and your service in Costa Rica and the uh the largest debt for nature swap uh between Costa Rica and the nature conservancy These are things that don't always get remembered uh, at the top of the headlines, but they're certainly part of history, aren't they? Well, um,
4: the things that happened in Costa Rica are not uh, in the museum, but they didn't make the cut on the key decisions that President Bush made, but um, it was a real honor for me to be able to go down there and serve. He asked me to go uh, in 2005 to help finalize the implementation of the Central American Free Trade Agreement, um, which is the main thing I worked on when I was in Costa Rica, but also helped Costa Rica. A, a grapple with some of the growing security concerns that you see in um, in Latin America especially north of Colombia that are related to the drug trade um, but I, I would say that you know my experience in Costa Rica um, uh, a was very positive and a really wonderful experience but it also reaffirmed my faith in in uh, markets free markets and also in uh, NGOs, nonprofit organizations, um, philanthropic capital, doing a lot of good in a positive way. You know, you can run for office and, and get elected and, and uh, command the levers of power in government, and that's one way to you know deal with some of these societal issues that we all care about. But but um, markets and the private sector and and uh, and uh, nonprofit organizations and 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 volunteerism, or other ways to do that, and and what you see in the museum is is President Bush and Laura Bush's work in government to uh, to focus on issues that were important to them. But you walk across the courtyard to the George W. Bush Institute building, and what you're going to find. Um, um, is the same couple, George and Laura Bush, working on those same issues, but using the platform of of, of private markets and the private sector, and also uh, philanthropy to to continue that journey. And we're hopeful that when people go to the museum, that uh, they'll get inspired and and uh, join us, and as we continue to work on those things at the institute.
2: I know the, the 500,000 visitors that you expect this year will enjoy the replica of the Oval Office and the Resolute Desk that kids can sit behind and grown-ups too and imagine that they were making those decisions that you talked about. But I'd love for you to, to, to describe for our listeners the Decision Points Theater. This is a, a high-tech presidential center, really the, the, the highest, uh, uh, the latest technology uh, you know deployed here. And uh, walk our, our listeners through how the Decision Points Theater works.
4: Well, it, um it was inspired by President Bush's book which uh, Decision Points which which he wrote when he left office and and he organized his memoir of his presidency as a as a series of key decisions that he made and and we kind of thought that was a really cool thing to have people um Kind of experience when they went to the museum. If you think about it, we elect our leaders to make the tough decisions, and we don't we don't elect them to kick the can down the road or uh, uh, or you know stick their head in the sand. We want them to confront the hard issues um, that that uh, face our our country and our society. You know, um, Kevin, you know, in, in government, um, a lot of decisions don't even make it to the president's desk if they're not difficult. They get settled at what's called the principles committee uh, level and. Only the really tough ones get to the president's desk. And, and to see um, how a president grapples with that, I think, is really the essence of, of leadership. So uh, we were fortunate that uh, Southern Methodist University actually has a graduate degree in in gaming, if you can imagine that, where they teach uh, people how to make uh, video games. But video games are really an extension of uh, uh, leadership simulations that have been going on for a long time in in the corporate world and and in the defense department. And so we kind of use that technology to create a game that you that you play with a partner and you go in and you and you um, have a list of uh, decisions you can choose from. The, uh, I was just testing it earlier today. I, I um, played the financial crisis uh, simulator, which is basically, you know, President Bush, Bush's decision to intervene in the financial meltdown uh, in the fall of 2008. And so you select that and then uh, Josh Bolton and Andy Card are, the hosts of the game, and they come on and talk about how presidents make decisions, and you're briefed on the issue, in this case, the the meltdown in the financial markets, and you're given two options. You can either use federal funds to intervene and stabilize markets, or you can let the uh, markets run their course and have the institutions fail and, and reconstitute themselves sometime down the road, and then you get... Um, you have four minutes to make your decision. You get briefings from the Treasury Department or from Wall Street or from Congress. Um, you also get breaking news. Lehman Brothers fails or European banks start to fail or money m- money market fund breaks the buck and uh, um, people are starting to not be able to get their funds to you know, fund their payrolls and things of that nature. And then you're forced to make a decision, which you do. And then President Bush comes on and Tells you what he did and why. and It's actually a pretty uh, instructive uh, uh, game to play. I think people will really enjoy it.
2: More information is available at bushcenter.org. Ambassador Mark Langdale, congratulations on what I know will be a, a remarkable achievement. And thank you for joining us here on Polyoptics.
4: It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mark.
2: The first draft of history. This is POTUS. This is POTUS. <laughs> Ari Fleischer, thank you for joining us here on Polyoptics. Of course, President Bush's first press secretary, press secretary at his side on 9-11 and through other matters of of great consequence. Ari, how were you consulted in the process of developing the the library? Well,
4: I'm not one of the planners of the library in any sense of the word. There's kind of a different group of people who have been doing that. Um, I've had the pleasure of two things. One, I got to take a private tour of the library a couple weeks ago and get an early early glimpse of what's going to be in there. And secondly, on the National Archives side of it, I've donated to the library all my notes, the only original notes of what George Bush did and said on September 11th. Uh, I took an uh, eight and a half by 14 piece of paper, single space, probably eight pages worth of literal verbatim notes of everything that happened that day.
2: And those are now available in the library for, for all Americans to come and inspect.
4: That's correct. They're in the National Archives section of the uh, of the library and museum. They're yeah. on the library side.
2: One one thing that, that did not surprise me, because having worked for President Bush, this does not surprise me at all, but talk a little bit about the, since you've toured the library, the that so much of the events are recreated through unfiltered media accounts. There's not a lot of editorializing or... or or uh, you know, hyping to, to make the president's case, it was pretty straightforward in terms of using news accounts. Talk a little bit about your impression of, of those news accounts when you walked through, and just the way the president and Mrs. Bush chose to treat history. Well,
4: you're exactly right, and I'll tell you, a lot of those news accounts gave me the heeba jeebies <laughs> it, it, it sent me backward in time. They have news accounts of the recount in Florida, and it's, it's gripping. You see how America didn't know who the next president was, and it's told through the, um, the voices of the network anchors and other reporters who describe what took place with an election that's too close to call, the scene from Florida. All of that literal history unfolds once more before your eyes. That's how they built the library. It was really designed to be, in a sense, contemporaneous, that as you walk through, you see what George Bush was going through at that time, at that moment,
3: we're all Sully and I are also interested ari in uh, in what Ari Fleischer was going through at that time at that moment. I mean, we are certainly uh, brought back poignantly as we reflected on what happened in Boston about what happens to a presidential staff that is going about their business. You were at the Emma Booker Elementary School in Sarasota. The uh, President Obama was in the West Wing uh, with another schedule of events. Suddenly the world changes. What was it like for Ari Fleischer on September 11th?
4: Well, for me, it was just a gripping, difficult, emotional day. Uh, when Andy Card walked in and whispered in the president's right ear, America is under attack. The second tower has been hit. I was some 15 feet over the president's left ear on the left side of the room. And. I had received a page moments before Andy walked in telling me that the second tower had been hit. And so I instantly knew it had to be terrorism. And then just a few moments later, Andy walked in. Everything changed. It changed for the country. It changed for the world. And it changed for the White House. We were a very domestic-focused White House, focusing on education reforms, particularly that week. Uh, Looking forward to a whole focus on on, uh, domestic matters. And everything became a wartime presidency. It became all a focus on international. It became who is al-Qaeda and why are they doing this? And the briefings went from being always serious because it's the White House to briefings now that were covered live on the TV networks, live on Al Jazeera, live around the world. And you just knew that every syllable that you said, which is always important to know every syllable you say at the White House counts when you're the press secretary. People are now watching and hanging on it all. And it it was a hard heaviness in the days afterwards. One thing that I'll, I'll always remember everybody in the administration, the CIA, the Defense Department was telling us it's not a question of when if, if the, the next attack will take place. it's only a matter of when and that was the reality we faced on September twelfth
3: So you mentioned that one of your contributions to the library were the contemporaneous notes from your legal pad. When did you start writing those? Did you write those uh, on the flights to Offit and back to Andrews? And and where were they in the intervening years before they were destined for the library?
4: Yeah, I basically started writing the notes as soon as I got on Air Force One. Uh, instead of going to my seat in my usual spot on Air Force One, I spent the entire day in the president's cabinet at his side just, just writing. Uh, in fact, I probably started a few of those notes even earlier in the presidential hold, the little room that was off of that school room. Uh, where the president was gathering information, and then went off to address the nation for the first time in the gymnasium of the school. Uh, most of it was on Air Force One, and then being at the president's side and off at Air for- at, um, at um, Parksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana, and then throughout the day, right until we got back to the White House at the very end of the day. Uh, I donated the notes to the Bush Library uh about three or four years ago. And so they've been in the hands of the National Archives ever since. They have the they have the originals, and it was a little bit hard to part with the originals. I of course have copies, but um, you know those those originals. I understand uh, uh, you know, to me they they were something special, and put uh, the, the proper place for them is uh, with the library, and I've loaned them to the library. Uh,
2: in your book, uh, Taking Heat, you, you wrote about how the media had changed as a result of 9/11. Take us through your thoughts on that.
4: Well, you, you know. The president is always at the center of media attention in the United States, but beginning on September 11th, the American people got to see him live, and it was a real change from what people typically see of any president, which is the snippets of news, an edited comment, seven seconds and a 30-minute speech makes it on the air. On September 11th, and then for years afterwards, people got to see George Bush unedited, and people liked what they saw. The live coverage of the president and his strong reaction helped drive his approval rating up to 90%. Now, looking back, people say, well, of course, America was struck and people rally around the president. Yes and no. People either rally around the president or they say the president's not doing his job properly. And that live coverage was a very interesting change because people in the public world got to see the George Bush that I always got to know who was somebody that I thought was was articulate when the press didn't really give him credit for being articulate, for being wonderfully compassionate when the press I think was indifferent to whether he was or was not compassionate, for being smart and able. And the American people responded to that. And for a short time, the press did too. Uh, That lasted probably about two or three months and only until things started to go well uh, in Afghanistan for so long. And then the press basically got a little tired of the president on top, president with a 90% job approval rating, things quickly reverted back to their form in January of 2002 with the collapse of Enron, and then it became the usual domestic political matters heading into 2002.
2: And you've you've described it as the media being biased in favor of conflict, and that that is uh, still with us today, I would say.
4: Well, over all my time in Washington, whether it was at the White House or on Capitol Hill, my conclusion about the press, and I wrote about in the book, is that the press's first and worst bias is a bias in favor of conflict, and that secondarily there's an ideological bias, and there is. It it particularly is pronounced against Republicans on substantive matters and particularly social issues. I think it's fair to say that the press is largely more in sync with the Democratic Party's views than they are with the Republican Party's views, and it shows up in their coverage. Uh, Frankly, since since George Bush left office and since President Obama came in, I I do think that my statement about their bias in favor of conflict uh, is not as strong as it used to be. I think the, the, the press is a lot easier on President Obama than they were on President Bush.
2: Ari, On January fifteenth, two thousand and nine, President Bush delivered a farewell address from the from the East Room in the White House, and and he he told the story of Arlene Howard, the, the mother mm-hmm. of a fallen New York City police officer, uh, giving the president his badge. And yeah, let, let's have a listen. This evening, my thoughts return to the first night
1: I addressed you from this house, September the eleventh, two thousand and one. That morning, terrorists took nearly 3,000 lives in the worst attack on America since Pearl Harbor. I remember standing in the rubble of the World Trade Center three days later, surrounded by rescuers who had been working around the clock. I remember talking to brave souls who charged through smoke-filled corridors at the Pentagon, and to husbands and wives whose loved ones became heroes aboard Flight 93. I remember Arlene Howard who gave me her fallen son's police shield as a reminder of all that was lost and I still carry his badge
2: now the most iconic image of the bush presidency was the bullhorn on the pile of rubble with with the firefighter bob beckwith but having seen president bush carry that badge or have yep. it in have it in in his personal aide's bag at all times for the for the rest of his presidency to me, was extremely powerful, and that badge is among the 43,000 artifacts at the Bush Library. Talk a little bit about that moment and that story and, and, and the impact that it still has today.
4: Well, I was at his side when he was at Arlene's side. Uh, that was September 14th at the Jacob Chabot Center on the west side of Manhattan, and that was a meeting with some 200 family members of those whose husbands and wives and sons and daughters and mothers or fathers were missing three days after the attack in our country. And um, Arlene was in that room. And it was an emotional time. Everybody was crying. The president was the consoler-in-chief, the comforter-in-chief, something he is exceptionally good at. And it was such an emotional meeting. Even the Secret Service stood back from everything. They just wanted it to be that personal connection between the president and those who are suffering, wondering about their loved ones. Which is highly unusual secret service is almost always right there at his side in case something goes wrong they all were f- removed and he went from person to person person to person hugging holding hands looking at people's bibles with them and he got to arlene and she was a little bit older she was seated and the president got down basically to eye level with her and she told them the story of her son and handed him the shield. And there were so many different moments where people were crying in that room, and that that was another moment. It was the type of thing. Even the stoic secret service, there were there were tears in some of their eyes as as this unfolded. That was the gravity of the time, and that was the human connection of the time. One of the things about President Bush is he's an emotional man, and these connections that he has with people run deep. And I think the country saw that. Very clearly, the aftermath of September 12th, September 11th, especially.
3: Ari, in terms of the way these stories are told, like that one, and reflecting back on what you told Sully a few minutes ago about the way the press was either going to uh, chronicle stories like that or question the way versus the way they might do it today, is it all on the press, or as you as you think about the? progression from Fleischer to Snow to McClellan to Perino versus Gibbs and Carney to this point, to even the way President Bush would either sit down and have a one-on-one relationship with reporters the way, for instance, Barack Obama might say, oh, Savannah Guthrie, come in and and let's have an interview. I mean, do you give some credit to both the ability to uh, court the press and also to in some ways bully them the way uh, one White House might and another White House might not in terms of their ability to succeed in getting a press to to heal? (laughs) That's
4: a good way to put it, to heal. Um, I think that President Obama has been very successful in his handling of the press. It's for two major reasons. One is technological. Times have changed and the mainstream media is less important than it was even during the Bush years when it was less important than it was during the Clinton years, even when it was less important. It became less important than it was during the previous Bush years. You know, 80 million people used to watch the network news on just ABC, CBS, and NBC back in the 80s. Just those three shows, 80 million viewers. Now fewer than 30 million get their news from those three programs. 50 million Americans have gone somewhere else. And so mainstream media is losing its clout. At the same time, that Twitter and Facebook and the ability of a White House to communicate directly with tens of millions of people has put the Obama White House in a very advantageous position. But the second issue is ideological. I really don't think the press holds the president's feet to the fire the way they hold the Republican president's feet to the fire. Uh, You you, you can't name a feeding frenzy that's taken place in this administration when I think there would have been several with uh, the Bush administration. Um, even the treatment of Vice President Biden, for example, that's just just another gaffe, just another statement. You know, if a Republican had made the statement the Vice President made about Seven Eleven and the Indians who worked there, there would have been an uproar in the media among special interests. They'd have fed off of each other, and heads would roll or apologies would be in order. You just don't get that now.
3: Did you have the bandwidth during your time as press secretary to say, to halt, to push back, to yell, to get? angry to to make people accountable from the podium and to say, you got this wrong? Well, you always
4: have that. You have the pushback from the podium to deal with reporters directly, and I did it regularly, and that comes with the job, and reporters know that, too, and it sounds like it might be a clash. It's actually pretty civil. You just make your case, they make their case back, and it's kind of like baseball. Sometimes you throw high-end inside, and that's the way it goes. You never try to hit anybody, but that's part of how you communicate, and they and they know that. Uh, what's different now is there's an alternative. There was really no alternative when I was there. Perhaps Fox News, which was, was still in 2001 to 2003 when I was the press secretary, they weren't what they are now. But there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, none of that was there at the beginning of the Bush years. Uh, Facebook came at the very end of the Bush years, and Twitter wasn't even really there at the end of the Bush years. Those phenomena social media have allowed this White House, to their credit, to go around the press court to communicate the way they want directly with the american people and it's changed a lot It just wasn't there during the bush years
2: getting back to the to the to the library those of us who had the privilege of working for president bush you know saw him up close every day you've told some great stories we've always believed that history would be you know a more accurate judge or would judge him more kindly than he was at the end of his of his term i know it's only been four years but having walked through the museum in the library at smu uh, can the library help accelerate that reevaluation a, a bit?
4: Well, I, I think it has to help, and, and it depends on how many tourists go through there and whether there are the, just the choir that goes through, you know, so to speak, the chorus and the choir, or it's independent people who are open to making different evaluations. And I also have to point out the president's approvals have been going up uh, since he left office, and he left office unpopular. Uh, Right before the presidential election, there was a poll on Bloomberg and showed that President Bush was more popular than Joe Biden. And was just a few points far behind President Obama. So history has started already to be kind to the president. What the library does that I think is going to contribute to that process is it takes the controversial issues head on. It doesn't shy away from them. And it deals with Katrina. It deals with Iraq. It deals with weapons of mass destruction. It deals with the economy and the collapse of 2008. And it walks people through what the president knew and why he made the decisions he made. And it lets people come to their own conclusions about what right or wrong would have been based on what was known at the time. And I think it does it in in a very straightforward manner that even critics would say this is based on the information he heard at the time. The only last point I'll make on this is, the, of all the things in the Bush years that still to this day get me and always will, is when anybody says Bush lied and people died, George W. Bush, me from the podium, Colin Powell, Secretary of State, Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense, Condi Rice, National Security Advisor, each and every one of us faithfully reported to the American people exactly what we were told by the CIA which was that Saddam Hussein had biological and chemical weapons. If there was a liar, and there was, the liar was Saddam Hussein. We reported exactly and faithfully what we were told, and it was the same information that the same CIA director, George Tenet, told to President Clinton. He was his CIA director as well. That's why President Clinton and Vice President Gore both concluded that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, same as the Bush administration did.
3: And what's fascinating, Ari, and also challenging, is that as you look at histories that are written about administrations, the work that Robert Caro has done with the Lyndon Johnson administration, the existence of so much more information sometimes than modern administrations uh, collect. There are the eight pages of your notes from nine eleven, but there are not the tapes which were meant to help a Lyndon Johnson future library mm-hmm. or a Kennedy library. I mean, in my administration or when I worked for President Clinton, you know, we just began the process of saying, uh, let's not put it in an email. Let's <laughs> you only use a telephone call. I mean, is there enough? Will there be enough uh, archival material, whether you're talking five or 10 or 20 years out, to validate what you're saying now or refute it?
4: Well, I think it's already been validated. I think the CIA has spoken out about it. You have George Tenet who wrote a book about it. uh, And you have many others who corroborated the information that we were told at the time that Saddam had biological and chemical weapons. Uh, And intelligence agencies around the world reported that as well, pretty knowledgeable intelligence agencies. And so that's why I say the liar was Saddam Hussein who created this whole aura of having them and our intelligence agencies picked up the information that he was putting out that made it clear that he had weapons of mass destruction. Uh, So to the broader question, times change, technology will always change, and archivists have to change with it. Uh, One of the Watergate reforms was there no more any recordings at the White House, and that led to other laws that made sure that you had to keep presidential documents. Any document the president has seen is by law an archive archive document. Uh, You have disclosure of classified information after numbers of years. So all all of those are the things that allow archivists and people going back in history to to do their job and to study what was known at the time. And in in the case of the Bush Library they have now so much digital records. I think the hard part for a historian or an archivist is going through the hundreds of pounds.
2: 200 million emails, 70 million pages of documents, and 4 million photos
4: how do you go through all of that and arrive at a balanced conclusion because there's so much to read how do you do it
3: so uh forgetting for one moment what's going to be in Dallas you know Ari whenever uh, maybe next winter when you come over to the uh to the uh the King Northern White House in Wyndham, New York <laughs> you'll see uh you'll see the King Presidential Library so beyond the eight pages that you have donated uh there's certainly a a, a store somewhere in the Fleischer household What are the personal relics (laughs) that you cherish most from your time uh, working for President Bush? Oh, I've got a ton of
4: stuff. I've got a lot of fun stuff. I kept all the menus from all the state dinners that I would go to. Um, Our our dining room actually has some framed uh, menus of state dinners or formal dinners with President Putin or uh, Prime Minister Sharon and other leaders around the world, Hosni Mubarak of Egypt. I've got several of the President's schedules, especially the schedule from September 11th, a stack of photos a mile high of different events um, with with the President. Um, I twice got to meet Pope John Paul II, uh, and I have pictures of me with the Pope. Um, You know, it's things like that. I I once got to meet Shaquille O'Neal, I have a picture of me and Shaq in the East Room. He's about three feet taller than me, and George Washington is about three feet taller than Shaq, because we were both under his portrait. Uh, there's all kinds of fun things like that 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 I've got in boxes and my children are 8 and 6 and when they get older maybe one day they'll be interested and I'll I'll get to show them the boxes
3: Well beyond sharing of favorite ski hill, Ari. You and I also share the fact that I, too, have my obligatory picture with Shaq in San Diego, California, <laughs> uh, as a result of a Clinton trip out there, and I also have a, a John Paul II picture or two, so uh, yep. uh, I can't wait to uh, to see you again in person, and, and best of luck with the library, and uh, with the rest of your work, and we'll see you down the road. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Joining us now is Karen Hughes, longtime advisor to President George W. Bush, former Undersecretary of State for, for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs, and uh, currently the uh, uh, Worldwide Vice Chair of burson marsteller Karen, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. What was your role in the, in the development of the library? I know they, they tapped you for your expertise and ideas. Uh, what was that like?
0: Well, actually, um, shortly after the decision was made to put the library at Southern Methodist University, which is my alma mater, um, First Lady Laura Bush uh, began a very active involvement. She put together a design committee and I'm not artistic or creative, so that was, that was not the right committee for me, but she asked me to join uh, an uh, interpretive planning committee. Um, where We really went about the process of hiring people who would help to ultimately develop the design of the library, but we spent a lot of time talking about the principles and values of President and Mrs. Bush and how those had been expressed over their lifetime, you know, how, how they've been shaped by growing up in Texas with that, that West Texas sense of, of optimism and the sky's the limit and the potential of every individual and the worth and value of every person. We talked about how, how as Sully knows, having worked for President Bush, he always based decision on, on core principles. You know, so, for example, uh, the, the belief that every child could learn and no child should be left behind, that, that freedom is universal and that free societies uh, are more likely to yield a peaceful world. Um, So he based his decisions on those kind of core principles. And what I was thrilled about when I did my first walkthrough of the actual um, museum a few weeks ago is that you really get a sense going through the exhibit how those principles and values shaped the presidency and the decisions and the service of, of President and Laura
2: Bush. Karen, you're uh, of course at Harvard right now leading a study group on political communications. What, what threw your mind on Boston Marathon Day? What it had to bring back memories of your you know, being at the White House on, on 9-11?
0: Well, it was. It was a terrible day for the, for the people of, of Boston, and and we all just grieve for the, you know, the families and and those who were who were killed and injured, and and those whose loved ones were affected. It's, um, it, it's just you know, I I I was actually in Austin, Texas, which is my hometown. We had been there to celebrate my son's birthday. And so my husband and I were getting on a plane to come back to Boston as we began to learn what had happened. And it actually really did evoke September 11th because I was actually not at the White House that morning and I had to go back to the White House in the aftermath of the attacks as everybody else was headed the other way. And I thought, here I am, you know, getting on a plane going to Boston um, at, at a time that, that appeared, you know, very chaotic. Um, I, I had emails from many of my friends from the Bush administration with whom we'd gone through. You know, just it's, it brought back a lot of the memories of the shock and the horror of that day. But I have to also say, I think it reminded me witnessing just the courage and the bravery with which, you know, the the medical workers at the race, the, the police officers who were there, the first responders, the EMS and firefighters, the, you know, just bystanders who, who you could see pictures of them helping to get the fencing away so that to help get access you know to the victims so they could be taken to the medical tent and i was just really in awe of the of the courage and the and the resolve and the, and the resiliency with which with, with which people responded to such a shock and such a horrifying event and you know it's a it's a great day here in boston patriots day it's it's a, a day of great celebration and of course the boston marathon is such a part of the city um but you know with with great american and bostonian spirit i think they've already announced that that they will have another marathon next year and it will be bigger and better than ever and and so i, I I think that you know what I saw was how far we have come in in the 10 or I guess now almost uh 12 years since, mm-hmm. since uh, 9-11, and uh, just, you know, how resilient our people are and how, how brave and courageous they are. And so it was a very difficult day here, actually. The Harvard Kennedy School was evacuated for a, for a brief time when they thought there might be some threats. It turned out not to be the case. Um, but, but it did bring back a, a lot of memories of, of that very difficult and shocking day.
2: Of course, on 9-11, you were the counselor to, to President Bush, his, his chief strategic advisor on, on communications and, and, and other matters. Uh, Let's have a listen to the speech that I know you worked on uh, with President Bush, September 20th, 2001, President Bush's address to a joint session of Congress.
1: Americans are asking, how will we fight and win this war? We will direct every resource at our command, every means of diplomacy, every tool of intelligence, every instrument of law enforcement, every financial influence, and every necessary weapon of war to the disruption, and to the defeat of the global terror
2: network. What do you remember about uh, working on that with, with the president? Well, just
0: hearing that excerpt just kind of gave me chills because it, it brought back the, the
2: origins of that
0: speech. And, and what happened was the Sunday after the attacks on, on uh Tuesday, September 11th, um, President Bush called me down to the White House. He'd been at Camp David having meetings with the national security team, and he called me down to the White House to begin to talk about an outline for what became that speech. And he said, as you just heard in the clip, that he knew Americans would have a lot of questions. And we constructed the speech as a, you know, just who were these people, and why had they attacked us, and, and what did we need to do to respond? And so we constructed the speech as as a response two questions that we knew people would have Um, and that initial outline that we crafted on on sunday we then worked with the speech writing team and mike gerson and his great team of, of matt scully and john mcconnell and uh... The, the four of us um, primarily they they did drafts, and i had I participated in, in some of it and a lot of input from the president. He feels uh, very strongly about uh, the importance of of major speeches um, and was very engaged in those speeches and in the clip you just heard, I think one of the things that he did was understand that the war on terror was not fundamentally just a law enforcement operation that it had to because this enemy that was fighting us was so ruthless and was so willing to you know to destroy innocent lives and civilian lives and they really didn't didn't care they didn't represent a state they didn't represent any people they just wanted to Murder innocents to promote their political agenda um, that that it really required all aspects of our national power from our military to our to our financing to our um, to our intelligence and and I think that's what President Bush so effectively did was put the government on that kind of footing and um, respond across all the aspects of our power to to begin to dismantle this threat
2: you know you and I in our our, our different times that we served in the White House both experienced firsthand just how hands-on President Bush was in speeches. Our, our former colleague, Bill McGurn, chief speechwriter uh, for a number of years, used to say he's the commander-in-chief, he's also the editor-in-chief. <laughs> exactly. And uh, and I, I know one of the great artifacts or exhibits in the in the museum are, are uh, a number of speeches, speech drafts, where you can see the president's handwritten notes in the margins and things he edited and changed and underlined and, and crossed out and, and, uh, and and that does provide a pretty interesting roadmap to his thinking and, and kind of how, how things evolved over time. Was that your experience when you when you went through the uh, library?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. It was just in seeing so many of you know, seeing so many of the things that brought back memories, the bullhorn that that evokes the great moment. I was I was actually with him in New York that day. It was the first time he visited Ground Zero. And uh, he got he you know the, the rescue he had, we had not planned for him. We had a prayer national prayer service earlier in the day, and we had not really planned for him to directly speak to the rescue workers. And it became clear they wanted to hear from their commander in chief. And and so one of our advance people found a bullhorn, and he he took it in his hand, and he you know he just off the cuff, ad libbed those powerful lines that that became sort of an iconic moment.
1: I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people, and the people who knocked these buildings down, will hear all of us soon.
0: And I actually was standing next to our our the director of FEMA, um, Joe Alba, and I turned to him and I said that's going to be in his presidential library one day. And I don't know what made me think that. It's just it was such a powerful, iconic moment, and I realized that standing there watching it, and of course, sure enough, that, that clip is in the library along with the bullhorn and so many other um, um, memories from from the speech edits that you mentioned to letters, heartfelt letters that he received from from some of the the soldiers who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, including critical letters. So he he insisted personally that he wanted not just the good stuff to be shown. He wanted it. He wanted people to see for themselves what it was like that he got some very gut-wrenching letters, um, criticizing his decisions. Um, and so there are letters that are critical as well. And so I think one of the things that's great about the exhibit is it takes on, it takes on the hard issues. It talks about Hurricane Katrina. It talks about some of the mistakes in Iraq. Um, and so it's a, it's a, it's a very, uh, I think, powerful experience that really helps people understand how President Bush based his decisions, what he was thinking and why he did what he did.
3: Karen, it's been an amazing hour. We've started with Mark Langdale and then had Ari Fleischer and now you. So we have a a very good sense of the building and the content uh, and what happened between 2001 and 2009 uh, that's being chronicled in the museum. And yet life goes on for a person who leaves the White House and is still relatively young uh, on the actuarial tables. And now is a time to, if with Sully and you and me, to maybe pivot to what a person does in his post-presidency. As this uh, library is gifted to the American people, also there's a communications plan that obviously you are helping on. And it begins with an exclusive interview that uh, President Bush had with Tom Benning of the Dallas News. Talk about the... the, the the new chapter and how President Laura Bush are going to spend the rest of their lives and talk about their presidency.
0: Well, really, one of the interesting things about the museum is as you leave it, you literally cross a line that marks the line that President Bush crossed going from being the president to being a citizen um, of of the country. And so he had to think about what did he want to do as a citizen of the country to continue to extend not the political work, but the policy work that he and Mrs. Bush had been so passionate about during the years of their presidency. And so one of the things we're all very excited about is that in the, in the over the course of the last several years, President and Mrs. Bush have stood up, a, a, I think it's now eight, up to 80 people, Policy Institute that is working and has offices in the museum and presidential center itself, not not in the museum, but right next door to it in the presidential center. And it's focusing on six areas that President Bush was was pursued during and mrs bush during during the presidency and so things like global health and education reform and the need for accountability in public schools and economic growth and human freedom it's got a wonderful collection of the stories of dissidents who led freedom movements across the world that's a wonderful it's the only thing only Repository of its kind in the world um, he also we many of us are working on a women 's initiative to try to improve uh, to work with women in the Middle East to help them gain the leadership skills and networks to uh, to bring positive change to their countries uh, and then there 's a military services initiative because President Bush during his service developed a very close bond with the members of the of the armed forces with for whom he served as as commander-in-chief. And so it's a way for those of us who are involved in the administration to continue to pursue the types of things that we were passionate about. So for example, as as Under secretary of state, I worked around the world to really help empower women because all the UN and World Bank s- studies show that when you educate and empower women, you improve every single other aspect of a society because women share that knowledge with their families and with their husbands and with their, their friends and, and their neighbors. And so it's, this gives us an opportunity. I just recently met with a group, of, a wonderful group of about 16 Egyptian women who are here, the second group of, of fellows from Egypt. And obviously, it's a very important time in, in the development of Egypt um, as, as they make their transition as a country. And so the opportunity to work, continue to work in the areas that we pursued as members of the Bush administration is, I think, one of the most thrilling things for all of us. And it's something that President and Mrs. Bush have devoted a great deal of time to and raised some a, a, a substantial amount of private money to endow and, and to make sure that that work continues to influence the world in a positive way for years to come.
3: Karen, in Tom's, uh, Tom Betting's piece in the Dallas Morning News, he, he talks about you briefly. He says, Karen Hughes, a long-term advisor, said it's been harder for the former president's friends to hear the criticism. Bush alumni, she said, will make a renewed effort to clear up, quote, some misimpressions in the public's mind. And, you know, Karen, I'm a consumer of all things presidential and the content that gets put out. Uh, One of those over the last few weeks was R.J. Cutler's uh, documentary for Showtime, The World According to Dick Cheney. And it would seem over the five days that R.J. sat with Vice President Cheney that Cheney was not helping uh, make the story of the Bush presidency less ambiguous. It, it, It comes as a sort of two different uh stories of the years from 2001 to 2009 what is Cheney's role in telling this story
0: well, I assume it's it's whatever he wants it to be, and I, I'm not familiar with the the documentary. Is it that that you're referring? I haven't I have not seen that, but I what what I meant by my quotes in the Dallas Morning News is that um, there are you know a number of us who feel, frankly, very frustrated that on behalf of the president, he doesn't. He's happy. He's he's he is convinced that he, he feels that he based his decisions on principle, that he did what he thought was right at every every major decision that he had to make, and that he's happy to let history be the judge. Um, I think those of us who are close to him feel like he 's been frankly because there was not because Vice president cheney did not was not seeking the presidency, which is certainly you know we all knew that, but because there was nobody out there basically defending president bush 's record, President Obama basically got to rewrite history over the course of the first couple of years of his of his presidency, and so he for example, kept saying that it was president bush 's economic policies that had resulted in the the great um, collapse in the fall of of two thousand and eight when actually it was primarily the housing policies that the Democratic Party had pursued that resulted in that collapse. When you loan money to people who can't repay it, you, you, you know, you're, you're on very shaky ground. And it was – both parties bear some responsibility, but it was primarily Democrats who tried to pursue those policies. President Bush warned early in his presidency that the two big government-backed mortgage giants, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, were out of control and needed to be reined in and needed to be reformed, and Democrats in Congress blocked that effort. And so, for example, there's, there's been nobody out there telling that story. And many of us who are alumni of the administration feel like it's important that we that we set the record straight. Um, president Bush gets almost no credit for what I think is one of the signature accomplishments of his presidency, because I traveled with him in the year 2000 when he was running for president, and when senior citizens all across this country – low-income senior citizens were having to make a heartbreaking choice between eating and buying groceries and taking the medicine that they needed. And members of both political parties had talked about um, providing prescription drug coverage under Medicare. No one had been able to get it done until President Bush. And he did it in a way that, that put private sector competition into the program and so as a result the cost has been thirty five percent lower than it was projected to be the program is enormously popular among senior citizens and it was also a modernization of a program that, that basically will save other money because prescription drugs are now often the, the form of the, the treatment of choice rather than more expensive surgeries or hospital stays or other major treatments uh, diseases can often be treated more effectively and for less money with prescription drugs. And and President Bush got that done, and and yet members of both parties, the Democrats, basically avoid it. And some Republicans were worried about costs, and yet... In my judgment, he he reformed something that needed to be reformed and modernized and did it in a very cost-effective way because he injected that element of private sector competition. And so I think a a group of us feel that story needs to be more robustly and fully told, and and we're committed to trying to do that.
2: On that note, Karen, I am sufficiently fired up. Let's dust off the rapid response machinery. Let's get some myth-fact documents and setting the record straights and fact sheets out there. Uh, That was great, and thank you so much for joining us today as the perfect capper to our show on the opening May 1st of the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Thank you, Karen Hughes.
0: Thanks so much. We're really looking forward to seeing everybody in Dallas.
3: Thanks, Karen. Thank you. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on SiriusXM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter, at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.